0: Please draw your sword, take your Bible, and turn to Luke chapter 12. We continue our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Storytime, Parables of Jesus. Once you find your place in Luke chapter 12, I invite you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse 13. I'll conclude at verse 21. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' Jesus replied, "'Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?' Then he said to them, "'Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions.'" And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Why are you here? I'm not asking why are you here in the sanctuary. I'm asking why are you here on earth? Your life purpose is greater than the summation of your family and friends, your choices and your career, your likes and hobbies, your interests, your goals, your ambitions. Your life purpose starts and stops with God. Your purpose in life is found and bound in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason you're on planet Earth is not just for you. It's for God to work through you. I think that the man who interrupted Jesus' sermon that day was only thinking of himself. Teacher... Tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Luke tells us that beginning in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, Jesus was preaching a sermon. On that day, the gospel writer says there were many thousands of people in attendance. They were so eager to get an earshot to hear what the holy rabbi had to preach that day that they were trampling On one another. Jesus stood before that mega church crowd of many thousands and he told them, Be careful of all types of hypocrisy. Don't be afraid of the person who can only kill the body and after that do nothing else. You be afraid of the one who has the power and the authority not only to kill the body, but then to throw you into hell. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing people to a desperate dependency upon God. God values you so highly, Jesus says, and he knows you so personally that he has the hairs on your head numbered. Now, for some people, that number is not very high. But for others, it's a greater number. But regardless, Jesus knows the number of hairs on every person's head. Jesus went on to say that he who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But he who disowns me before men, I will disown before the angels of God Almighty. He went on to say that when you stand to speak, when the synagogue rulers call you in to give a witness and a testimony, don't worry what you have to say, for the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need to speak. No sooner had Jesus said those words, and before Jesus could wrap up the sermon, land the plane, offer the invitation, this anonymous bystander interrupts the sermon of Jesus and says, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.'" At this moment, I'm sure Jesus must have thought, what does that have to do with anything I've been talking about? Clearly, this man's not even listening to anything in my sermon. i got to be honest with you, I do find some great comfort in that. (laughs) That if people aren't listening to the preaching of Jesus, why should I get upset if people aren't listening to my preaching? On this day, Jesus must have thought to himself, what does that have to do with anything I've been talking about? Clearly, this man is not listening. You know, sometimes... People don't listen to the preacher. I know that's a shock. I know it's surprising. But sometimes people check out in the sermon. Sometimes people come to church with an ax to grind. It's because they're consumed with that crisis. It's because they have some problem with some personality. It's because of that that difficulty. That, That difficulty keeps them from listening to the sermon. And this man had an issue. He brought an ax to grind. He had an injustice. He had a problem. He had a predicament. And that problem kept him from listening to the sermon. Teacher, I want you to divide, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Have you ever come to church and been unable to listen to the preacher because you have something that is just nagging in your spirit? I remember my first church I was a pastor in Owenton, Kentucky and it was a country church and every Wednesday night we had a prayer meeting it was called a Wednesday night prayer meeting it wasn't a midweek service it was a Wednesday night prayer meeting Now, I was young. I was a pastor. I never led a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Didn't know exactly what to do. But I thought to myself, if we're going to have a prayer meeting, we probably ought to pray. So this is the format I established. I said, okay... When you voice a prayer concern, somebody else immediately is going to stand to pray for that concern, and then we'll ping-pong that back and forth that when you have a concern, somebody else will pray for that concern. After that person prayers prays, someone else will stand up with an additional concern, and, a, and a other, another individual will pray for that concern. That sounded pretty good. But if you do that for 20 to 30 minutes, that can be depressing. I had no idea there could be that many surgeries and back aches and cancers and diseases and hip replacements and knee replacements. After doing that, for several weeks on end, several months on end, I got tired of it and I was convinced that God got tired of it too. So I decided to throw a curveball. I thought to myself, okay, as is the custom, you prepare a brief devotion before you launch into the prayer time. So prepare a brief devotion, but this time, let's have a devotion on the goodness and the greatness of God. That God is so good, that God is so great. He is so worthy of our praise. He is the object of our affection and our attention. Let's just testify to the goodness of God. And tonight, not only are we going to hear this great devotion on the goodness of God, but then we're going to give praise reports on just how good God is. And once somebody gives a testimony, then somebody else is going to pray thanking God for his goodness in that person's life. I got to be honest with you, I was pretty motivated. I thought it was pretty good. I gave the devotion. I set the parameters. There was a sweet saint. She raised her hand in the back. She shot up her hand so quickly that I got excited. I I was enthused by her enthusiasm. I called her by name. This is what she said. Pastor, just yesterday, my dear friend got diagnosed with inoperable liver cancer, and the doctor said she's going to soon die. I was waiting for the rest of the story, but that was it. I was waiting for some testimony about the goodness and the greatness of God, but that was it. There was nothing else. That woman came to Wednesday night prayer meeting with that one concern on her mind. She couldn't listen to anything that the preacher had said. And at the first moment opportunity, she just entered, in, in, inject, uh, uh, She just simply shouted and said, I need for you to pray for my friend. Now, in that moment, I didn't handle the situation properly. I was young. So if I remember correctly, I think what I said was, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> Are there other praise reports? I didn't quite know what to do. I was taken off guard. And I just simply said, well, praise the Lord that your friend's dying of liver cancer. Woohoo! That's phenomenal. Anybody else have a praise testimony report? Now, Jesus handles the situation far better than I did. An anonymous bystander just simply shouts, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.'" Apparently, this man had lost his father. If we read between the lines and try to connect the dots, we could assume that the man who speaks this injustice is a younger brother, and he has an older brother who would have served as the executor of the estate— Now, in Jewish law, if there were two brothers, the older brother not only would be the executor, but he would be in line to receive two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother would receive one-third of daddy's inheritance. We don't know how long it's been since the father passed away. Maybe it's several weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe it's been many months, Regardless, this man believes that his older brother is not doing right by him. He believes that his older brother is dragging his feet. He believes that the older brother is socking it to him by not dividing the inheritance and giving him his rightful share of one-third of the estate. So he comes to church that day. He is consumed by this injustice. He's got an ax to grind at first moment's notice. He simply says, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus responds, man, who appointed me as a judge to serve as one who gives arbitration between you and your brother? Certainly, this is not the first time, it won't be the last time that families fight over money. It's not the first time, it won't be the last time that siblings squabble over the inheritance of their father. But Jesus seems a bit put off by this request. Did you hear what the man called him? Teacher. And Jesus knows he's so much more than a teacher. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus says, not only am I not a teacher... But I'm not just an earthly judge who came to settle your disputes. Jesus seems offended because this man tried to demote Jesus. Any understanding of Jesus that's less than Son of God is a demotion. Any understanding of Jesus that's less than Jesus being the Son of Man is a demotion. Any understanding of Jesus that is something less than Jesus is Christ long away to Messiah is a demotion. Any realization that Jesus somehow is less than God in the flesh, the Savior wrapped in skin, is a demotion. Jesus is offended when people demote Him. And as Jesus' people, we ought to be offended when other individuals demote our Savior. When they say of Him, He's nothing more than a holy rabbi. He's just a religious teacher. He may even be a good teacher. But anything less than He is Son of God, Son of Man, He is Christ. He is God in the flesh. He's the Savior with skin on. Anything that demotes Jesus not only offends Jesus, but offends Jesus' people. Jesus knows he came for so much more than just settling family disputes. Jesus came for so much more than just impressing you with a few miracles and astounding you with a few speeches. Jesus came to give us so much more than just a few hints on how to have a happy marriage and just some uh, helps in parenting some teenagers when they lose their minds, And Jesus came for so much more than just showing you how to have the best life now. Jesus came so that spiritually dead people might come to life. And if you miss that, you've missed it all. Jesus came not to settle family disputes. Jesus came not just to help us with economics. Jesus came not just to entertain us. Jesus came not just to wow us. Jesus came to bring spiritually dead people to life. If you miss that, you've missed it all. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is communicating his power and his authority. If you watch his activity, it always points to his identity. To the Roman centurion, who valued his servant highly, Jesus showed him that Jesus has the power to fix it, even though we don't deserve it. To the paralytic, Jesus shows us that he has the power to heal and the authority to forgive sins. To the lunatic named Legion, Jesus shows us That he has the power to break sin's bondage one person at a time. To Peter, James, and John, who stood on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus showed them and he shows us that Jesus is the Christ. He's in a class all by himself. And to Lazarus, Jesus shows us that nothing can hold us back. For when Jesus calls us by name, not even death can hold us. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out the grave. Jesus is the God who glorifies. He's the Messiah who mystifies. He is the Savior who satisfies. He is the Lord who leads us to life. Jesus came to bring spiritual people to life. If you miss that, you've missed it all. What a great place for an amen and a hearty clap, I'll tell you that much right now. No, 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 no. (laughs) Not a golf clap, but let me tell you, Seriously, Jesus came so that dead people can come to life. Anything less than that, and we miss it. Jesus answers this man's request by making a couple of statements and telling a story. Jesus said, not only to him, but also to them, watch out for all forms of greed. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Watch out, be on guard, be aware against all kinds of greed. The word that's translated greed literally should be translated covetousness. But because very few people know what covetousness means, the translators just put in the word greed. Because most of us know what greed means. But to covet means that you want something that doesn't belong to you. To want something that you have enough of already. It's to want your neighbor's house. But you've got a fine house. It's to want your neighbor's truck. But you've got a running truck. It's to want... Your well behaved neighbor's children. But you've got children that you're supposed to teach how to be well behaved. It's to want your neighbor's wife. But you've got a great wife. To covet means that you want something that doesn't belong to you. It means to want more of something that you have enough of already. Jesus says, be on guard against all manner, all types of greed and covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To prove his point, Jesus gives a well-spun story. It's a parable. It's a fictitious story that has a ring of truth to it. Jesus throws this story alongside real life. He lets you connect the dots. He tells an earthly story and this earthly story has some eternal truth. Jesus is proving his point that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So like many of his stories, there was a man. In this story, It's a rich man. In this story, it's a rich man who was a farmer. Now, that's an anomaly. There aren't very very many rich farmers. But in this story, there was a rich man who owned a lot of land. And one year, he had a bumper crop. It was better than most years. It would seem that every year was pretty good. But this one was off the chain. This one was tremendous. This man already had many barns. Those barns were filled with grain and supplies, but now, because of this bumper crop, this man has a dilemma. What do I do? Where am I going to store all this grain? What should I do? I don't know if this man is a very good religious man. I don't know if he's a very good family man, but I do know that he's a selfish man. The reason I know he's selfish is because he comes to the conclusion, I will tear down my existing barns, and I will build bigger barns, and these bigger barns will help me store up grain for years to come. I can retire early. I can eat, drink, and be merry, and his justification was, I've earned it. I deserve it. I worked hard for this. This man had an impeccable work ethic. I can well imagine he was up before the sun peeped over the eastern horizon. I'm sure he worked longer than darkness blanketed the day into night. This man worked hard for month after month, season after season, year after year. He certainly worked hard. He certainly was tremendously blessed, but it never came across his mind, I've been blessed to be a blessing to somebody else. He never thought to himself, the reason I have so much stuff is so that I can give that stuff away. This man never connected the dots that grace to you ought to motivate grace through you. If God has been gracious to you, it's so that you might be gracious to others. Grace to you must be grace through you. This man never thought about that. He never connected those dots. He just thought to himself, look, I've got a lot of stuff, and I've got more stuff. I've got stuff on top of stuff, and I've got to store my stuff in bigger barns. So in three verses of 17, 18, and 19, this man says almost 12 times, I or my? This is what I will do. I will tear down my existing barns. I will build bigger barns. On nearly 12 occasions, nearly a dozen times, he says, I or my. It's all about him. Because this man had a lot of stuff. He was a self-made man. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He made something of himself. It's at this point that your life may cross this man's life. Because you have a lot of stuff, don't you? you got stuff on top of stuff. you got more stuff than you used to have. you got more stuff probably than your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. You've got more stuff than most people have stuff all throughout the globe. You've got stuff upstairs and downstairs and on the stairs, don't you? You've got stuff that's in the dining room and in the kitchen and the family room and in every closet. You've got stuff in the attic and in the garage and in the basement. You've got stuff parked in your driveway. You've got stuff that's in the bank account. You've got some stuff that might even be docked at the lake. You've got stuff on top of stuff. And if you don't have a room for all your stuff, then you'll build storage units so you can put more stuff of that stuff in that stuff. And so you can store all your stuff. you got stuff on top of stuff. It's at this point that you may intersect this man's story. Sometimes you ask yourself, what am I going to do with all my stuff? I think it really comes home to us when we downsize. We move from one house to the next and we say to ourselves, okay, we're going to downsize. And then you ask yourself, where did all this stuff come from? I mean, we've been here 10 years, 12 years, 25 years, 40 years. Where did all this stuff come from? Stuff just accumulates, doesn't it? And you get more and more and more. And you think to yourself, well, I've earned it. I deserve it. I've worked hard for it. But have you connected the dots that grace to you must be grace through you? This man reached this conclusion. I will tear down my existing barns. I will build bigger barns because bigger is always better. He hired the best architect in town. I can imagine that one night the architect is at the house of the family farm. Spread out on the kitchen table all the blueprints of the barns. On one side of the table is the rich farmer. On the other side of the table is the architect, the lead contractor. They're going over all the adjustments, the fine-tuning, the differences that this man wants to make. And so he's telling him, I want you to create uh, an additional storage shed on this barn. I want this barn to have another loft. And he's uh, just thinking about this project that he is thoroughly consumed by. The minutes give way to hours. Eventually, The architect, realizing how late it is, he just rolls up his copy of the blueprints, puts it under his arm and says, Sir, I'll make all the adjustments you've suggested. I'll come back by in the next day or two. I'll let you look at it again. We'll square up uh, any of the remaining cost. I know you're good for it. Sir, I've been here so many times, I know where the front door is, so don't you mind getting up from the kitchen table. (laughs) I'll just see myself out. The architect leaves. No sooner has he left than the wife of the man comes walking by. She knows that her husband is just overwhelmed and consumed by this project. So she kisses him on the forehead and she said, Honey, don't stay up too late. Just come on to bed. Don't let me find you asleep here at the kitchen table again tomorrow morning. No, no, don't worry about it. I'll be right there, he said. But who was he kidding? The adrenaline was pumping. He was thinking. He was calculating. He was imagining what could be placed there, could be placed, how much this would cost, how much that would cost. Not that he needs a loft in the fourth barn, but it sure would be nice. More storage space. And all of us need more storage space. Can I get a hearty amen? We need more storage space. We can put more grain there, put more supplies there. And the man just kept thinking about the project. Not only was this man building up barns, he was also building up stress. All of a sudden, there was a tightness in his chest, a pain shot down his arm, sweat broke out over his forehead, and in a second, he was gone. He slumped over. His head hit the kitchen table. He was dead. Just like that. Life was here. Life was gone. At the funeral, the community praised him for his work ethic. They applauded him because he was a self-made man. Not everybody can build their own kingdom, but this man, this man proved it. He built his own kingdom from scratch. He had nothing, and clearly he had everything. So they praised him for his hard work ethic. He deserved all the blessings of his life. You know what God called him? A fool. A fool lives life as if God doesn't exist That's a fool. This man was foolish not because he was rich. This man was foolish not because he had things. This man was foolish not because he had stuff inside of stuff. This man was foolish not because he liked the nicer things of life. This man was foolish because he was not rich towards God. He was greedy. He wanted more of what he had enough of already. He wasn't rich towards God. He lived life as if God didn't exist. And God said, this man is a fool. Jesus tells the story to illustrate that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's not the one who has the most at the end of the day that wins. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, if life doesn't consist of the abundance of possessions, then what does life consist of? Jesus anticipates your question. So the very next verses give the answer. Jesus is still talking. Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 22 to verse 34. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you'll eat, Or about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour in his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief can come near. No moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is answering this man's request Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says to him and to them and to us Be careful of all kinds of greed, for your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Well, what does life consist of? Seeking the kingdom of God. You seek Christ who's seeking after you, and that will become your overall obsession, and everything else will take care of itself. You seek his kingdom. You be a Jesus chaser. For the one that chases after you, you chase after him. Don't worry, Jesus says about your life, what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. Don't worry. That word worry that Jesus uses here in Luke 12 is to be unduly concerned. Don't worry about it. In a couple of chapters earlier, when Jesus has an interaction with Mary and Martha, he says to Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. It's not the same Greek word, That Jesus uses in both places. Not the same word, but they are synonyms. And in that story of Luke chapter 10, when he says to Martha, you're worried and upset, that word for worry means you are bound in knots. Have you ever worried so much that it just wound up your intestines? You ever worried so much that it just becomes so overwhelming that you're tied up in knots? You're so uncomfortable You're just just bound up. And Jesus in our passage says, "Don't, don't worry. Don't worry. For who among you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The answer is none of us can. We don't know how to add more hours in the day. All of us only have 24 hours a day. And all of us only have seven days a week. We cannot make more time. But if we worry about adding time to our life, the reality is we'll probably shave off a few hours of life. Worry won't add to our life, but worry will take away from our life. It may cut away a few hours of our existence. So don't worry. Jesus says if by worrying you can't do this little thing of adding more time in your existence, then how could you do any of the rest? You hear the irony, don't you? Jesus is saying to us, you can't do this little thing called adding time. No, Jesus, we can't add any time. We've got all the time that all of us have. We can't add anything to it. Now, Jesus can make time because he's the eternal God. and He stands outside of time. And By standing outside of time, he's the creator of time. So if he wanted to elongate time, he certainly could. If he wanted to add to time or take time away, he could do it. Why? Because he's Jesus and I'm not. I can't create time. You can't create time. But Jesus can. Jesus said, if by worrying you can't add one single hour to your life, and if you can't do that simple thing, then don't worry about any of the rest. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. He gives two illustrations Don't worry about your food, for God even provides for ravens. Ravens are dirty birds. You know that? They are cousins to vultures. Jesus said a raven, that dirty bird, he does not have a barn. He doesn't have a storeroom. He goes from one meal to the next meal to the next meal. And if God in his sovereignty can provide for those dirty birds, those cousins of vultures... Then certainly he can provide for you. You don't need to be all bound up. You don't need to be wound up. You don't need to. You don't. You don't need to be uh, unduly concerned about your supplies, because if God can supply for a raven, He certainly can supply for the righteous children of God. And furthermore, don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't work. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't labor. Yet, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if God can clothe the flimsy flowers of the field, who are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, then certainly he can take care of you. If he can look over the lilies of the valley, then he can certainly look over your life. We get consumed with fashion, don't we? The shoes we wear, the pants we wear, the shirts, the jackets, the hats, the blouses, the dresses, the skirts. We get overwhelmed with fashion. And Jesus says, you don't need to be so overwhelmed with fashion. Now, don't go to the opposite extreme either. Don't say, well, it doesn't matter what I wear because some of y'all might need a little fashion tip. Because what you're wearing just kind of clashes, all right? But but seriously, we don't need to be consumed by what we wear. That ought not to be the first thing that we think about. How are we dressed? What are we wearing? What are the people thinking about what we wear? Does this make me look fat? Do I look good? What about this? What about that? We get consumed about those things. Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about life, what you're going to eat. Life does not consist of meals. I mean, God takes care of the ravens. He'll take care of you. And life doesn't consist of just your fashion and your clothing and your external things. Because God takes care of the lilies of the field and they are dressed finer than Solomon in all of his splendor. So what does life consist of? Seek first his kingdom. You seek Christ and all these other things will be added to you as well. You get consumed not with the blueprint of your life, you get consumed with the architect of your life. You get consumed with the architect of the cosmos. You get consumed with Christ and him crucified, dead and buried and raised from the dead. You get consumed about Jesus who's consumed with you. You become a Jesus chaser and you chase the one who chases after you. Seek first his kingdom. I've told you before about three questions that I ask myself routinely and I ask them of you. These three questions, I call them friends, but sometimes these friends show up at the most inopportune time. To call them a friend doesn't mean that I always like them, but they are always beneficial. Sometimes these three friends, these three questions, they indict me, but at the same time, they're rather insightful. What are those questions that I've posed before and I'll mention again? Here they are. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? You answer those questions and it will reveal with impeccable timing the kingdom that you seek. Who do you think about the most? Well, I know the answer should be Jesus, but there are times that I think about myself the most that's pretty selfish. There are times I try to justify it and I say, well, I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my children. I'm thinking about my extended family. Oh, but oftentimes, if it's not Jesus, I'm seeking my own kingdom, somebody else's kingdom. Who do you make it your aim to please? Once again, the answer should be Jesus, but sometimes I make it my aim only to please me. Who do I rearrange my schedule for? Oh, on this one, we tried pat ourselves on the back and we say well i rearranged my schedule for everybody else my spouse my children my grandchildren my boss my coach my classmates my teammates my teacher but sometimes we do all that just to build our own kingdom just to make a name for ourselves just to work hard to get things because we deserve it who do you think about the most who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? If the answer is not Jesus, then it just might be that you're seeking after some other kingdom than the kingdom of Christ. We ought to have an all-consuming passion to serve, to know, to worship, to talk to, and to talk about Christ. Jesus went on and said one other thing. He connected inextricably treasure. And heart. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, whatever you cherish, whatever you value, whatever's of utmost importance to you, that's where your heart will be. That's where your passion will be. When it comes to your spiritual life, Jesus connects our Christological preoccupation with the cardiovascular system of our spiritual life. If we treasure Christ, he will be our heartbeat. If we treasure the Lord, he will be the one that directs our decision. Wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is also. Whatever we value, that's what we passion. Whatever we treasure, whatever we cherish, that's what we think about the most. That's what we make it our aim to please. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. What is the existence of life? Why are we here? We are here to know Jesus and to make him known. Because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life consists in knowing Christ and making him known. That's why I completely agree with the hymn writer. All to Jesus I surrender. And all to him I freely give. So, I will ever love and trust Him, and in His presence I will daily live. So, I surrender it all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Nice words to sing, hard lyrics to live. I surrender it all, Jesus. The best way to loosen the grip of greed in your life is to give. Give to God, give through His church. Give to those in need. The best way to loosen the grip of greed in your life is to give. If God has been gracious to you, it's so that you may be gracious, so he may be gracious through you. Grace to you ought to prompt grace through you. The best way to loosen the grip of greed is to give. You cannot be greedy and generous. It's impossible. And you also can't settle just how generous should I be. Because our generosity is tied to Calvary. Because God was gracious to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus walked through 42 generations. He stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem barn, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. All the sins that you have ever committed never will commit were placed squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. He died. He gave up his spirit. He bowed his head. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. On the third day, the treasure of heaven got back up. Jesus began to breathe again. He burst forth from the tomb. We are generous because God has been generous generous to us in Jesus Christ. God was not greedy towards us. He was generous towards us. So one theologian said it this way. He said, God, I pray I will give you everything. And what I cannot willingly give you, I invite you to come in and take. What a prayer. Can you pray that today? God, I surrender it all. And what I cannot give you, the problem, the predicament, the person, the situation, the sadness, the injustice, whatever I can't give you, for whatever reason, I invite you to come in and take so that all to Jesus I surrender and all to him I freely give. Maybe this day you need to give your heart to Christ Maybe this day you need to give and surrender unto his salvation. Maybe you are a Christian, but there's something inside of you. There's something nagging. It's something that brought you into church. And if you're not careful, it keeps you from listening to the sermon, but not today because you listen quite well. But sometimes it keeps you from listening to the sermon because it's something that nags you all the time. That, my friend, you need to surrender unto Christ. The altar is open for you to come and pray. Maybe you need to pray for yourself, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. Maybe you need to pray for your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your classmate. You need to pray for somebody. Today is the day to do it. Today, surrender it all unto Him, all to Jesus. I surrender, and all to Him, I freely give. Help me, Father. We bow before you. We give everything to you. For whatever reason, something we can't give, we invite you to come in and take. Lord, we declare today that we need to seek you better than ever before. So, Lord, help us to respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.